live from the Finley Toyota ESPN Las Vegas studios. Hold on, Ed is saying, Ed, are you there? Ed, yes. Can you hear us, Ed? This is the Press Box. <laughs> to answer your question, Jared, before we go to break, and hopefully Ed chimes in a little. <laughs> With Grady and Bischoff. We'll take a break, and when we come back, maybe Ed Grady will be able to hear us. You guys there? On ESPN Las Vegas. Hey, we're all good this morning. It's Ed, Tyler, Jared, Lindsay, the sh- running the show. Everyone's in the, it's the morning zoo. What I have an think? important question for Lindsay. Oh, boy. Who's the best team in the NFL? Um, I It's kind of hard to argue at this point that it might be, but most likely the Minnesota Vikings. They're bums, but. How dare you? <laughs> Jared's putting his hands up in the air. I think he means Kansas City Chiefs. No. That is factually correct. <laughs> How many losses do they have? Man, if they gave out the Super Bowl for how many losses you had. Well, I'm just saying, now that the Eagles are no longer flying the heights that they are Icarus-like, you know, fly too high to the sun, I'm just... Is Taylor Heineke the sun? Hey, maybe he's riding on the fumes of his uh, time at the Minnesota Vikings, inspirational, one could say. I don't think that's it. Maybe. Can't say it's not. Could still be a possibility. The First Bite. Is Josh McDaniels doing a fantastic job? So I talked to Mark Davis yesterday. I'm, I'm excited about this. <laughs> yeah, okay. Did you record any of this? Can we, yeah, can I record. I did you record everything. any of this so that we could like hear his tone of no, voice? I can't. I can't do that. But I do record everything. I will put it. I, I'll put it in perspective here because. Uh, okay, this is what this is what the, I'll say the uh, rest of the quote was in terms of doing a fantastic job. He went on to say where we are compared to where we came from. So, and take that for what you want. He said we had a 10-year coach who had a 10-year plan. He left. Uh, so now we're starting with this guy, and we did an exhaustive search, and we came up with the person we believe will lead us to greatness in the future. So he did say the fantastic job, but I also but he followed up with where we came from and where we are. So I do think he believes... He he knows they're two and seven, and I know he and he no one's happy with that. And I know he told Paul Gutierrez of ESPN, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day, and he's only coached nine games and all of that. So, but he did say he's doing a fantastic job. Yeah, I like Josh. I think he's doing a fantastic job. That's why I hired him. Which, by the way, is a weird sentence to put in there. Um, <laughs> I hired him because he's doing great. Right. It's, it's the end of the future, Mark. It's a tremendous quote that you got out of Mark Davis when the team is two and seven at the moment. Uh, the the part that I like the most is you wrote, asked specifically if he believes McDaniels is the long-term answer at head coach. Davis replied, why wouldn't I? Because that, that takes me back to yesterday when I asked, what has McDaniels done to inspire optimism about the future? What has McDaniels done that you can point to and say, ooh, that's why we think he's going to work out into the future? And you kind of asked Mark Davis that question, and he didn't really give you an answer. Because why wouldn't I is not an answer. Why wouldn't I is not pointing to anything that McDaniels has done. That's just saying, well, of course I believe in this guy. Despite there not actually being any evidence to point to to say, well, this is why I believe in him. Yeah, I mean, I again, I'm trying to kind of go in with what he said to me in the in the whole conversation. Um, I think he believes this is what I'm just what I read from it at least. I think he believes that that in the future they'll have he'll have his more of his own guys. And again, we've talked about this. He should have blown it up. 
They didn't. They thought they're going to win now. Now that they haven't won now and it's two and seven, it's going back to, well, we're evaluating. We've always evaluated. So we've given them a hard time on that. That was ridiculous to say because you signed all the people you did to win now. So I think he's also taken the road of we're going to rebuild this. And I believe in him and Dave that they can rebuild it and get the guys they want to win. That's where I think that was coming from. Um, I don't want to put words in his mouth, um, but that's, I mean, I'm trying to, you know, come up with, you know, exactly what I thought he meant in talking to him for, I mean, 10 minutes. Did he, like, you you took that from Mark Davis, and you 100% believe Josh McDaniels is back next year as the head coach? I believe it 900%. 900%. He's, been, he's, right. he's back next year. Uh, if you weren't yes. going to fire him after this week, when is it? Like, it's it's pretty yeah, much could, a done deal. You could play the season out. No, he, I think he's back for next year without question, no matter what. So... Uh, Jeff Howe of The Athletic, he tweeted that McDaniels has been given assurances by ownership that he'll return as the head coach in 2023. I guess, like, if this team finishes the year, what do they have, eight games left? If this team finishes the year, you know, and goes four and four, three and five over the rest of the course of the season, right? He's back. It's a bad season, but hey, things didn't completely spiral out of control. I am genuinely curious if they finish the year three and 14 or two and 15. Can you honestly bring him back? Like, if they I mean, lose every they game the rest of the year, can you actually bring Josh McDaniels back? Yeah, because I think he can. Because I think he convinced them that. Um, well, I think in that instance they're going to move on from Carr. Even if they don't, you know, perhaps well, that they, they might have done that in season. They might have lose the rest. They might have easier Jenga block term. Might have done that, but I think that they would convince them that this is what we're going to do. We're going to get this quarterback. This is what we've always wanted. He's always wanted his own quarterback, and they're going to build around him, whether it's Bryce Young, whether it's the kid from Ohio State, whether it's the kid from Kentucky. I don't know who they pick. And if they're 2-15, and 15, they're going to get one of them, right? I mean, they're going yeah, to be, they'll be picking gonna, one or two. Top three mm-hmm. pick or top yeah. two pick with Houston probably. Um, so, yeah, I think I, – I, I don't think there's anything he can do and not be brought back. So, I think he's coming back. So You can't just be paying – for two, right. three coaches. Right. You can if you have money. Like what, what? the Raiders are just screwed because they got an owner doesn't have any money. So yes, Tashawn <laughs> like Reed of the Athletic wrote a story that was, "Hey, Mark Davis has to take accountability for this, right? That Mark Davis is the one." And listen, you go through this. I'll ask the question: Has Mark Davis made a good hire since he's become the primary owner of this team? Like you go through the head coaching hires he's made, Dennis Allen, Tony Sprano, including interims, Dennis Allen, Tony Sprano, Jack Del Rio, John Gruden, Rich Basaccia, Josh McDaniels. Right? Yeah. Are any of have any of those been good hires? Basaccia and Jack, I mean, Jack Del Rio are the only ones with winning records. Excuse me? Uh Jack Del Rio and Basaccia are the only ones with winning records since they've been the right. Raiders head coach. Like he has not made a good head coaching hire. And if you say, Oh, Basaccia, he got rid of him for the guy that's coaching him right now. Go through the GMs, too. Reggie McKenzie, Mike Mayock, and Dave Ziegler. Are any of those good general managers? Like, Reggie McKenzie took over a bad roster situation and made it better, but didn't exactly make it good. <laughs> Got him out of cap hell, and for that, they said, we're going to bring in John Gruden. Like, Mark Davis has has done a horrible job hiring people. He has not shown as an owner that he can identify who's going to be a good head coach or a good gen- general manager in the NFL. And so, Deshaun Reed wrote the story in The Athletic saying, Mark Davis needs to take accountability for this team. He actually doesn't. Who's who holds the owner accountable? The fans, fans. technically. Right. Fans. Are yeah. the fans going to stop showing up next year? No, no, no. not this. Why you moved to Las Vegas, baby? There's all Absolute. these other things you can do. It sounds nice to say you want to hold the owner accountable, but this fan base is going to keep showing up. They've been beaten for two decades now with a bad football team. 
and they're still showing up. Mark Davis has absolutely nobody to show accountability to, right? The idea that he's got to be accountable. No, he doesn't. Fans are still showing up to watch his yeah, team. Rich play. people problems. Sure, he wants to win. No, no doubt about it. about it. No doubt about that. But there's no real punishment for Mark Davis. He just, I mean, his team loses, but there's no, like the fans are, st- if this team goes two and 15 and brings back the head coach of the team that goes two and 15, they're still coming back next year for week one. Yeah, We're still going to have a whole off season of, oh, we're going to beat the Chiefs this year. The fans? Yeah. 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 Absolutely. It's not going to stop. So there's nobody to hold Mark Davis accountable. Not, none whatsoever. Because this fan base isn't going to actually turn on Mark Davis in a money sense. They'll turn on him on Twitter and yell about how bad of an owner he is or fire the head coach and all that. But the accountability part, Mark Davis won't ever feel anything from it. Won't ever feel any sort of punishment or heat from it because well, they're still showing I'd up. Say- Probably 32 guys are like that. <laughs> well, some fan I mean, bases don't show up. The Jags fan base didn't show up for that the game. The Browns fan okay. base right. when, during that two-year But they're stretch. not losing their jobs. Well, no, because, well, you're the owner. You get right. to decide you get if to you decide what job you or do. not. But you can look at it I and think say, I'm doing great. And say, yeah. wow, we don't, there's like half the stadium's empty. Right. What are we doing wrong? Mark Davis is probably never going to do that. He might look at it and say, oh, half the stadium's Chiefs fans. But, hell, that happened last year yeah, when they went to tickets, the playoffs. Their tickets. So, are just it's, as good. It's just the idea, because to me, the biggest problem for the Raiders has nothing to do with Josh McDaniels or Dave Ziegler. It is Mark Davis. Since he's been the owner of this team, he has not shown he can be an owner of a team that wins anything. Has not shown that. He cannot hire good coaches or good general managers. Hasn't done it once. And until that changes, the Raiders are probably going to be a bad franchise. But there's nothing to actually hold Mark Davis accountable because this fan base is always going to show up. That's actually one of my favorite things while cutting sound for like whenever McDaniels is talking is watching the fan base fight each other over the team rather than like showing any sort of unity of oh, like on the, message uh, on the YouTube like, they, thing. They are they are more interested in they are more interested in yelling at each other than like guys, your team is is not very good. Maybe rally around that. You see the comments on the YouTube stuff? Yes, that's the that's what, you're talking, about. Yeah, that's what you're talking about. Yeah. Live comments on YouTube videos during yeah. press conferences. I made a TikTok about it last week, literally. These people, <laughs> these people show up to the YouTube page for the defensive coordinator yeah. ready to fight. Like ready to fight their buddy in seat like like row F. Like right. Yeah. Not mad at all. Raider like, fan X69 says the defense and secondary are shoddy. Like, that's literally what they're chiming in with. Yeah. It's like, no, they're not. You're an idiot. Yeah. It's the offense. It's amazing. How many wins did they finish with, Ed? The two and seven with eight games left. How many wins does he yeah. finish with? End of the year, how many wins do the Raiders have? Six or seven. Oh, God. Hold what on. a nightmare. That's optimistic. What Hold a nightmare. On. No, I mean, I think I think they he might be right. Really? Yeah. I thought the front part of the season was their easy schedule. Yeah, yeah. They're going to win the hard games. Yeah. Oh, okay. After the season's that over. That makes sense. They're going to win the hard games. You're going with six, too? <sighs> I'll go with five. They finished the year with three. They win three out of the last eight. Yeah. yeah. I'll at go Denver, wins. at Seattle, uh, Chargers at home, at the Rams, New England at home, Pittsburgh, San Francisco, Kansas City. I like how Jared's writing this on the board as if it's not going to be erased in like <laughs> yeah. four no, hours. I'm going to take a picture. So what, do you, what are you going to do? Forget about that in your phone? Screensaver. Yeah. Put it at the top of the rundown, then we won't forget about it. All right, coming up next, UNLV. Hey, they finally play a real basketball team tonight.
Keisha out of the front court. Rebels lead 77-55. Rodriguez drives down the right side. Rodriguez throws it back to Keyshawn for three. Keyshawn's three is good. Uh, That's his third of the game, unofficially with 23 points. We're back to the Press Box Morning Show with Ed Graney and Tyler Bischoff. Am I over-exaggerating if I say that tonight's UNLV game is the biggest of the season for UNLV? Uh, just a bit. Just a bit? Just a bit. I know what you're going to go with in terms of them being ranked, and this is, well, this is by far the only, I, am I saying the only team they play in the non-conference? They, they've got they've got some other okay teams, but this is the only top 50 if team If they, they win play. that 1 a.m. game in San Juan Capistrano <laughs> against somebody, they might get another 1 a.m. game the night before they escape against Minnesota. Uh, their non-conference schedule, the next best team is like a Washington State or a San Francisco, um, but neither of those teams are top fifty. They could get Minnesota, right? Uh, yeah, I don't. Is Minnesota, I don't know if Minnesota is that, top fifty thought, either. Okay, uh, but they might be. I'd have to double check that. So this is easily the best. Even if they play Minnesota, this is still the best team they're going to play in the non-conference. Yes, in that Dayton. question. Now, once they get into Mountain West play, play. San Diego State's ranked. Um, they're kind of. I'd guess at the end of the year, San Diego State and Dayton are kind of around the same in terms of, hey, they're roughly a top 20-ish type right, of team. Right. Top 30, maybe, if they fall a little bit. Uh, but this is the best team they're going to play before Mountain West play. And here's here's my argument for why it's the biggest game on the schedule. If UNLV loses this game, I think their NCAA tournament at-large hopes are basically over. They could obviously, obviously, if you ever go like 18 and 0 in the Mountain West, you're going to have a legitimate at large case, right? If they lose to Dayton and then only lose like two games the rest of the season, obviously they're going to be an at large team in the NCAA tournament. That's not likely to happen. I think the legitimate chance that they're an at large team, if they lose tonight, is kind of over because the chances for quality wins that UNLV has. They don't really exist after this, right? Again, when you start looking at quad A or quad one and quad two uh, wins, this one and San Diego Diego State, State. those might be the only, there's probably a couple of road games in conference play that'll count because like Utah State will end up in the top 50. Wyoming gets the big man back and they're suddenly really good. So there might be a couple other ones, but UNLV's probably looking at four, maybe five quad one games. And this is the only one in the non-conference they'll probably get. And so if they lose, there's just not going to be enough to build an NCAA tournament resume, again, without ripping off 30-2 and two as your overall right. record. But if they win tonight, you still don't have a lot for your NCAA tournament resume. But if they were to upset Dayton tonight, then you do have a marquee win. Then you do have a quad one mm-hmm. win. And you're going to have to rip off a good record either way because the schedule's pretty light and you're not going to be able to afford to lose very many games on this schedule. But... It gives you that marquee win, and it's going to give you a landmark win when it comes to the NCAA tournament. The rest of the non-conference, not a, you can't say that about a single game the rest of the way, right? If they beat Minnesota or Washington State or San Francisco, those will be like good wins that'll help you in LV, but they're not that marquee win that you can write in as, hey, best win, Dayton. Like That's going to help them in March if they do that. If they beat San Francisco, that's not going to do a whole lot to help them. For the NCAA tournament. So I think this is the, to me, this is the most important game because it basically sets the narrative for the rest of the non-conference play. So as I told Kevin Kruger yesterday, I hate this term. This is why I asked him the question directly. It's a measuring stick game. Measuring stick. I hate that term. And then I said, hey, is this a measuring stick game? 
<laughs> and he said, yes, it is. <laughs> of course see, it is. See where they're at. See, Why wouldn't it be? See how good that defense really is. So I just, I think this game is the most important, at least until conference play starts. And even then, I think it's probably the most important until the Mountain West tournament. Maybe there'll be a San Diego State game in there that that counts for more. But this one, to me, it, it just, it's so, it means so much for UNLV. Now, here's the interesting part. Uh, Dayton is the fifth tallest team in the country. Ken Palm gives you average height of every roster. Fifth tallest team in the country. They're two leading scorers right now. One is 6'9", one is 6'10". They also have a 6'8 guy that shoots threes, and then they've got another 6'9 guy that's their leading rebounder. Like, I don't know if they all play at the same time, but they can put like four or five guys out there that are six, all 6'8". Six, 6'9 and eight. above, 6'8 and right. above. I don't think they'll do that. I think they'll play. They do use some actual guards that are not giants. Right. But this team is really tall. And the part that I'm curious to see, we've talked so much about UNLV and what they are defensively or what they could be defensively. But uh, here's UNLV's starting lineup by height. 6'3", 6'4", 6'4", 6'6", and 6'10". They are going to be outsized in this game. They are going to be giving up inches in this game. David Mawoka and how good he is as a rim protector might be extremely important because Mawoka, remember, he transferred in from Lamar two years ago, was the, what, what conference were they in? The Sun Belt? Can't remember. Whatever conference that was. Defensive player of the year. Came to UNLV, didn't look great in the first half of the season last year. Looked better in the second half, and now he's in the starting lineup. And the main thing he's there for is his rim protection. So he's the most important player tonight. He might be, right? If Dayton dominates David Mawoka, UNLV probably doesn't have a shot in this game. But if David Mawoka can prevent layups, if David Mawoka can force Dayton instead of getting layups to take shots from six, seven feet away from the rim, UNLV might have a legitimate chance to win tonight. So he might be the most important player in tonight's game, at least defensively. On the other end, UNLV's got to find somebody to score. Yeah. It's probably going to be the first game where they actually have to like, okay, who's going to put points on the board for UNLV? We've seen Keyshawn Gilbert had a great game, but again, it was Incarnate Word. Jackie Johnson, we've talked a lot about him being sort of the bench scorer. We'll see if that works. And then EJ Harkless, we haven't seen a whole lot out of him so far this year in terms of, hey, that guy could be the offensive star of this team, but I'm still kind of assuming he's going to be one of the top offensive guys on this team. Curious to see offensively how they look against an actual, a real college basketball team because it's the first time they're playing one. Yeah, and Kevin said yesterday, you know, defensively, I think I think he's happy defensively with what they're doing, but said offense is a work in progress, you know, until, you know, several more games to see what they have in offense. And I don't know if your work in progress works tonight. I'm trying to find a... Right now, have you seen the odds? I'd lo- I'd be fascinated to see what the, the odds are tonight. Uh, I can tell you Ken Palm projects Dayton to win 71-64. So that's okay. a seven-point spread okay. by Ken Palm. And usually the sports books are kind of right online Worth Ken with Palm. Ken Palm. So probably somewhere in the 6-7-8 range would be my guess. Um, here Here's the thing for you. Know, well, there's two things for you know, offensively. Um, first off, can they shoot? They've made 27% of their threes so far this year. That. 15% in the first game. Um, can they shoot threes? That was a big question coming in. But here's the other part. UNLV has turned the ball over on 22% of their possessions offensively. The national average is 19%. Yeah. So they're turning it over more than average. And again, they've played Southern and they've played Incarnate Word. They have not played a good defensive team yet. 
and they're turning the ball over a lot. What happens when they play an actual good basketball team? Uh, it might not go well for them. Like, by the way, this by the way, I, I just found it four and a half. Oh, sports books or people are betting on UNLV. Uh, no, open to four and a half, and well, there's some three and a halfs in downtown, some four. So yeah, the money's going towards wow. the Rebels. All, All right. right. Look Maybe at it's that. at 8 o'clock starting. The Dayton kids are going to be too tired. <sighs> they'll be sleep, sleepwalking. Yeah, they'll be sleepwalking through, through that thing. But UNLV, shooting's always important, but this team has turned the ball over a lot against bad teams. Does that suddenly change well, now that they're playing Dayton? You've watched them live. I have not. Tonight will be the first time I watch them live. What has been the issue with their turnovers? All, their, their anything you could possibly think of is an issue. Offensive fouls. Travels. Throwing the ball out of bounds, like any anything you could think of, has been a problem for them turnover wise. They're just they just find ways to turn it over because again we talked about it offensively. They don't have they had they recruited or got transfer guys that are great defensively, right? And the offensive side is Kevin Kruger apparently said yesterday a work in progress. This is a big reason why because they turn the ball over a lot. I'm curious they they struggled. One of the big things they struggled when Southern pressed them. Southern pressed them for like five minutes, and UNLV was like, ah, we don't know what to do. It was Southern. Hmm. So, I, that to me is, if I had to pick where UNLV loses this game, it's because they throw away 18 possessions, possessions, 18 this, possessions. This, to, tonight, and right. they don't even get a shot up in those 18 possessions. That would be my guess. Now, on the flip side, they're the number one turnover defense in the country so far. They've, their opponents, what are, they, what are they opponents turning uh, over on what percentage of the 35% possessions? of possessions. And again, the average is 19. Now we'll see tonight. Right. That's Southern, and that's Incarnate Word. That's Incarnate Word. Uh, Dayton is actually one of the better offenses at not turning it over so far this season. So that's be huge tonight to see which way that goes. Um, But that, I think, is going to be one of the keys along with David Mwaka and the rim protection in And who scores. Right. Right. So we'll see. I think biggest game of the year. Mark it down. Biggest game of the year, Dayton. It sets the tone. Like what? As the Lindsay's third game here, of the year is the biggest game of the year. Lindsay's the here tone, to Lindsay? say something. I'm going to say something stupid like Setting her. The Set the tone. How dare for the you? Schedule. You got to inspire the masses. It's not going to usually happen with stats. You got to have a rallying call or a saying of some sort. So I'm yeah. not a coach. It all boy. starts tonight. If it they, all starts here. If they beat Dayton, given their future schedule, at least their schedule over the next several weeks, tonight could really, really get them some momentum. <laughs> It could. Coming up next, David Roth joins the show. We're on month three of Dishwasher Watch. David Roth from Defector is with us on the Press Box. Subscribe to the Distraction on Stitcher and use the promo code DISTRACT for a free month of Stitcher Premium. All right, David. You hyped it up last week. Is Dishwasher Watch over for you? I wish it was over. I feel like I'm getting ghosted. I need to, I'm basically at the point of emailing the electrician, like, how many outlets do I need to pay you to install in my home for this to be a thing that you're willing to do? (laughs) The building came back to us. They wanted another couple of requests. I sent those along, including, I think I said this last week, they wanted, like, proof that the person was a licensed electrician, which was, like, I think this is pretty far into the grift there if they're just like coming in and, and improving the whole thing where they're like, well, I don't know how to do this, but how hard could it be to work with electricity? <laughs> I've got to give you like, credit. Like, what are man? even the risks? I mean, like, this, this is, it's free money, basically. I've got to give you credit that your wife has put up with this this long. Uh, yeah, she's for sure, like, at this point, like, her dad's coming down for Thanksgiving, and this is the sort of thing where, 
you don't want it to be two consecutive holidays and be like, ha ha, yeah, it's yeah. not actually plugged in. <laughs> so I got to wash that with a sponge. Like, it wasn't cute last year, but it's like way less cute now. So I, I think we've got a shot at it because like, this is the thing that, the guy, I mean, they've done basically everything. The building isn't going to hold it up. It's apparently been referred to some committee within the building. I'm just like, all right, have fun with that. Knock yourself out. Like, I, as long as I don't have to go to a meeting, like you guys are welcome to discuss my new lighting fixture at length, if that's what you feel is best. I just feel like the work itself is so minimal that, like, if we can get this person in here, even, like, the day that my father-in-law gets on the train in Maine. Like, <laughs> like they'll be, it'll be done by the time he gets here, and I can just be like, oh, yeah, we've had this finished in June. I never brought that up. But, but in this case, yeah, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be exciting. You, you want these sort of things to be a nail-biter if you're me. Uh, we're actually going to get uh, your father-in-law's email address and send him copies of your interviews on this show so he is fully aware of how long you haven't had the dishwasher. It's going to be great. One of the other radio things that I do somewhat regularly is in Bangor, Maine. He can like hear it as he drives around in his Subaru up there where he lives, and uh, that's always kind of a, a weird stressor. Like, I live in fear of accidentally using a curse word on the radio in general, but the idea of <laughs> committing that blooper while my father-in-law is like driving to a dump to root through their old books... Especially bad, I think. All right. Um, in the world of baseball, is uh, Jim Crane, the owner of the Astros, just Jerry Jones? I think he's like Jerry Jones without the swagger, right? Like, because Jones at least is like having a blast. Like that guy is just like paddling a canoe down a river of Johnny Walker Blue at all times. Like that's it's not how I would want to live my life. But if I had a billion dollars and owned the Cowboys, it would kind of feel right. Crane is just kind of going for it. I think, so I don't know too, too much about what the story is with uh, getting rid of Jim Click, but it seems like there were personality issues there in that front office, but that's been the case. I mean, he was brought in to replace the guy that created the personality issues, and it seems like somehow the, the personality issues are just like part of the office furnishings, and it kind of doesn't matter who's there. That When you model the front office experience after, like, a McKinsey consulting engagement. It's like, you're just going to keep losing people because they're miserable and they don't want to work there anymore. And that seems like sort of like where they are, where they are offering a guy a one year contract extension after he wins the damn world series is also like, it's kind of a Jerry move. It's also sort of like you have to get to like weirder, more abrasive owners. Like that's almost an Al Davis type flex. I think dusty just jumped to his deal though. Yeah, Dusty, I mean, I feel like Dusty could walk away at any moment and be perfectly happy. Right. Like, if you just, like, I, I don't know, like, why he wants to spend another summer flying, like, on a <laughs> chartered plane to Cincinnati. Like, he's, like, set going to be 74 years old next summer. But, uh, you know, I guess it's like if you knew you were going to make a few million dollars and get to hang out in a baseball uniform and, like, yeah, he, like, scores the games and he's always got a toothpick in his mouth. Like, I don't think he'd be doing anything different if he wasn't managing the team. He would just be sitting, like, 10 rows further back. I mean, you, you saw the uh, the video of him on the final out of the World Series. He went to write it down in his scorebook before so celebrating. I love it. That is just, like, peak grandfather behavior. I feel like that's you have to win the respect of your team like that. Like, if they win a World Series, the first thing you say after the last out is, like, not now, let me finish this. They know. <laughs> they know like who's the alpha in that dugout. Uh, who else are the Mets going to throw a bunch of money at in the offseason? I mean, the hope is Jacob deGrom. This is, it's kind of weird that for all the, you know, the talk about, you know, there are all these, you know, big ticket free agents and all the shortstops and stuff. 
I feel like DeGrom is not getting talked about even as much as like Justin Furlander's free agency is. I think mostly because everybody's like, well, he's weird. We don't know what he's going to do. The other stuff you can kind of like game out what team they might go to, but like DeGrom is going to make this decision off of some secret formula that only he's going to understand. He'll never explain it to anyone except for like maybe people in his family. And so it seems like I don't think the Braves are going to spend on him. I feel like they're, it seems like they're getting ready to let Dansby Swanson walk. Like, I don't understand why they're being as cheap as they are beyond the fact that uh, they seem to only like to sign guys to long deals that buy out their RBRs. I don't know if they really enjoy paying free agent rates. But that takes one team off the table. And then the idea that, like, DeGrom is just going to go sign with the Texas Rangers because there's, like, better hunting down there. Like, it could happen. He's a weird guy, and the Rangers have a lot of money. Uh, I have a really difficult time imagining it. I think the thing that's going to be weird with the Mets is seeing how they... I don't mind the, the Edwin Diaz signing. I think it's probably the sort of thing where, like, you know, in five years the contract's going to look bad, but I would get to watch Edwin Diaz for five years before then, so it's not... And it's not my money, so it's not my problem. Could I've been be- surprised by the rates for, like, seventh-inning guys. Like, Rafael Montero getting, like, his what is it, age 32 through 35 seasons at, like, 10 or 11 million per... Is like I don't know that I want the Mets spending that much on like mid bullpen guys, but again, it's not my money. They can do whatever they want. I just if they're going to run like a five hundred million dollar payroll, I hope they have fun. But I don't think they're going to do that. Could Degrom be weird enough to go to the Dodgers? Maybe this is the thing that like why why wouldn't you? You know, like I mean, I feel like if they are willing to spend the money on him, which I'm not a hundred percent sure that they are. The Dodgers have been very leery of the luxury tax, but I guess they have like, is like David Price finally off their books this year? Like they're like <laughs> actually going to be able to sign some guys. Is David oh, they're, Price David Price is off the books. They're bringing okay. Kershaw back, but they won't pay him, you know, nearly as much, not, right? Nearly and, as much. And I imagine that Beeler's going to be uh, at like, cause he's going to miss the season. He's miss be like a similar art thing. I don't know. Maybe. I mean, I feel like with the ground, nobody really understands what, what he wants. I mean, the thing that I've heard, you know, of the doomsaying Mets people that are like talking about this, it's all like, oh, well, he wants to be in the Southeast because that's where his family is. But like at some point, you know, it, it's worked before that like you fly somebody out to Los Angeles, and you're sort of like, it's always like this, by the way. <laughs> like, that, I mean, you'd have to be, you have to really love Florida to like be walking around uh, in Los Angeles in the springtime and be like, yeah, I don't think this is for me. <laughs> Uh, where are you going with a cardboard cutout? So this is embarrassing, but, uh, so we did do a presentation on it last week. We, um, randomized it. We did it as like ethically as we could. There's like thousands of people that entered this dumb contest. Thousands. Look at you. Yeah. It's ridiculous. The winner, uh, lives 17 blocks due South of me. I could walk it. (laughs) So we got to figure out a way to make it like my coworkers, I think especially were annoyed. Like I was obviously delighted and my coworker, <laughs> Lauren Tyson had uh, like did like sort of a mock travel uh, plan for me that started with me taking the train down to the bottom of the Island and getting on the Staten Island ferry with the cutout. And I was like, Oh, this is the worst case scenario. Like if I have to go like just riding the Staten Island subway with a large cutout of myself while a bunch of guys think Salvatore, like, what do you think this is funny? Like this is disrespectful. Like I don't like that was the worst. But she just looped me all the way around the country and then had me come back. Yeah, so this person like lives near the uh the hospital where my dad gets his knees done. <laughs> so, like I'm like 
it, we'll see how it goes. They're going to try to find some way to make it awful for me. Uh, but <laughs> the proposed um, idea would be that we rent a limo and that I'm just in the limo for like three minutes. I like the ferry idea better. You need to be in public with the cutout of yourself. The limo gives you way too much privacy. I know. Although I do think the idea of like ostentatiously getting out of the limo with a messed up cardboard cutout of my own hideous form on it is like, that's pretty good. It's a good gag. But yeah, like I had completely prepared myself for the idea of like having to put the thing through TSA. Oh. I thought I was flying to like Dallas. I was just trying to think of like what's the worst possible outcome. And, I'm, and my coworker who was doing the like the randomizing would give me these little because he was noticing where like the last applications were coming in from and it was like from weird places it was like it's kind of oddly a lot of alaska people entered i was sort of hoping for that one but then a lot of stuff was from like dallas and so he would message me and be like hey have you ever written anything disparaging about like fort worth texas and i'd be like probably yeah it seems like something i would do but those arrived as like threats to me like, it was, like, the sort of thing that he wanted to, like, do a security clearance to make sure this was going to be okay. And then, yeah, it turns out I don't even have to take the subway if I don't want to. Oh, all right. You got off easy. He's David yeah, Roth. Yeah, I really did. <laughs> from Defector. Uh, you know, maybe whoever you're taking the cardboard cutout to, you should see if they install dishwashers. I was going to say, I'm going to get a referral. I told you I got one from a lady upstairs. I right. have a backup plan. Right, yeah. So if I have to text Norbert, I want to make it clear to the other electrician, like, Norbert's on deck. Like, this is, this is you got to step up. It's always good to have competition to get the best out of your electricians. That's how you do Absolutely it. Absolutely true. He's David Roth from Defector. David, as always, Thanks, we appreciate David. it. Thanks, guys. Have a great day. Uh, yeah, Defector, they they ran a contest who uh, David Roth would show up at your house with a cardboard cutout of David Roth. <laughs> and I guess, unfortunately, somebody won that lives very close to where David Roth lives. All right, coming up next, there are no more unbeaten teams in the NFL. Snap to Hurts. Throws underneath. Caught by Watkins, thrown to Smith. He's trying to throw it backwards. He's hit by Cam Curl. That is picked up by Casey Tuhill in the end zone. It's a defensive touchdown to end the game. An exclamation point to end an undefeated season of the Eagles. It's the Press Box with Graney and Bischoff on ESPN Las Vegas. There will be no 17-0 as the Eagles lost. That's a shame. What do you think? The Cowboys are catching them? That's what SportsCenter says. I didn't say that. I just... Like that they lost. Uh, the Eagles ended up with four turnovers last night. They had three the entire season leading up to that. When we talk about um, luck in the NFL, turnovers are a big part of that, especially recovering fumbles. And the Eagles were fortunate in their early part of the season to not have any turnovers. It all caught up to them last night. And they still actually had a chance to win that game uh, in the fourth quarter if they, well, if they don't have one of those turnovers, they have a legitimate chance to win it. But. What did you think of the unnecessary roughness call when Taylor Heineke took a he knee? He gave himself up until, yeah. Takes it, it's third knee. down. He scrambles. Nobody's open. So he takes a knee as opposed to throwing right. it and having an incompletion and the, yeah. stopping the clock. And two Eagles crush him, tackle him. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's There's probably one second that elapsed between Heineke taking a knee and the two Eagles players hitting him. So it was going to be fourth down. Washington was going to have to punt the ball back to Philly. Uh, in a one-score game. Instead, that gave Washington a first down, and they could run almost all of the clock off and ultimately won the game. You you think that was the right call? I have to watch it here. I'm watching it. Once I saw his head snap back and hit the turf or the grass or whatever, I'm like, that's probably going to be a flag. It, yeah, with it, 
It was incredibly it was awkward. It's it's not yeah. a hard hit, but it's a hit that looks like it was more than it was in, in that right. po- point of the game and considering where we're at with quarterback protection made sense to me. And the and like you said, and I'm watching it again, the head the head snaps yeah. back and hits the yep. floor hits the floor. Yep. I think if Taylor Heineke slides instead of t- takes the awkward knee, none of it happens. Right. If I you think know Taylor Heineke, he's not a slider. He's right. gonna he's gonna outstretch for every damn inch. They almost beat the Buccaneers on their way to their Super Bowl win, for goodness sakes. But the best part of that entire play is Taylor Heineke celebrating. Yeah. Yes, he gets yeah! up and starts starts pointing down the field <laughs> to the first down I? like a nut job. His celebration after that is yep. the absolute best thing yep. I've ever seen. Because he he knew as soon as he felt contact after taking a knee, yep. he was already pointing to the referee. Oh, he's pointing to the referee right while there. While his yes. head is snapped yeah, back. It was like a basketball back. fall. You're like, yeah. all right, all right, to yes. the line, guys. Yep. Let's go. Yep. His celebration after that is so, it's it's probably one of like the top five celebrations of the year, like of in terms of being excited about a play. And it was, oh, I got hit late after after I took a knee. It's phenomenal. There. The sacrifice. But that is it, I'll say this. It's a as a viewer watching it for entertainment, it's an unfortunate way for a game to end. For sure. Like it it doesn't feel right. Like it was like, oh, the the commanders finished the game off because their quarterback took a knee yep. on third down. It just felt wrong, even though it is the correct call by the rule book. Did you see it though? Speaking of referees, the Bills had twelve players on the field during an overtime play against the Vikings mm-hmm. and it was not called by the refs. Mm-hmm. So and also a catch that shouldn't have been listen, earlier as well. So, so we over there's the momentum, you. That's two baby. In a row. That's what karma. Momentum? That's karma paying off for us. So first and goal for the Vikings in overtime. Buffalo has twelve guys on the field. I think Dalvin Cook had a three yard loss on the play. Minnesota ended up having to kick a field goal. Right, if they score a touchdown, mm-hmm. game's over. They game's win. Game's right over. There. They win it. But they have to kick a field goal and give the ball back to Buffalo. And Josh Allen gets them in the field goal range rather quickly. Right. Allen still throws the pick, and the Vikings end up winning anyway. But if Josh Allen throws a touchdown on that play instead of a pick, we're looking back well, saying, yep. wow, the Vikings probably should have scored a touchdown and ended the game before Josh Allen ever touched the ball. And the nut job to my right is going crazy. Who me? <laughs> Shorter to my right. Shorter to my right. Is it to my right? To your, to your 1 o'clock. To my 1 o'clock. Yeah, your 1 center. o'clock. Yeah. And yeah. then on top of that, like Lindsay said, end of regulation. Uh, one of the biggest plays of that drive for the Bills to get in the field goal range, Gabe Davis makes a catch right along the sideline. Did not secure it. And the Bills get up, hurry up, and they run a play before the replay right. officials can review it. And we I don't even think watching it on TV, I don't think we saw a replay until after the Bills had run and a play. And the coaches can't challenge that. Like that has right. to come from upstairs. Right. And so that's yes. why coaches should be able to throw that that in that situation. So Bill Belichick said that yeah. when asked. He's about on it. our side. Uh, but here's my question on that. Like, yes, it sounds nice that, hey, the coach should be able to challenge that. Yeah. Is a coach challenging that? Because he hasn't seen a replay either. True. Who's, who's te- like, because we had not seen Is it, it on someone TV. someone from upstairs? Well, how have they seen it? In this Somebody's scenario, like, the, the pass is completed. Television has not shown a replay yet. And the Bills snapped the ball, right? You, yeah. There was no replay. It's awareness on yeah. their part. And Trust in his players? I guess, like, you, you'd have to see it yourself or something right, like that. Right. But even then, you're in the last minute of a game. Timeouts are incredibly valuable. Are you willing to risk a timeout in that scenario for something that you think you might have seen live? 
I don't think coaches are challenging very much in that scenario. Like I, I just I think the the chances for that to happen are so rare, and it's such a well risk. mostly like you said because of the timeouts. Right, yeah. you're going to lose a timeout. You know, over you're something, not going to lose a timeout over something you think you saw live. Not right. so like it's one thing if you've got a guy up in the booth who's seen who's the replay seen two or five three times. replays and he's seen and he he knows absolutely like, that right. we're going to get this one. I'm pretty sure. But if you're the coach and you're just like, oh, uh, I think that was a drop. Let me throw the flag and potentially burn a timeout here. I don't know. I don't. I don't believe many coaches do that. So it sounds nice. Yeah, I let coaches challenge in the final two minutes, but it's also like eh, it's probably not going to come into play very often. And every once in a while, when they show you a replay, it's going to be all right, guys. We finally have the definitive angle. Nope, the ref's foot is in the way. Oh my yes. Yeah. What game? Or your was offensive it? lineman. Was it? Was it the Minnesota yes. game? Yeah. Yeah. They yeah. They're up. like, all right, guys. We finally think we have a good angle. And literally, it's the ref's heel. It's the ref's foot. How did they, okay, I, for whatever reason in that game, they had like the pylon cam down one side of the goal line and the other side, it was like a cameraman sitting on the ground taking his lunch right. break, Yeah, left his camera on and it was not down, it was not down the goal line. We're like on the four yard line and the ref's heel is in the way. Snack time. And they're like, this is going to determine whether or not Kirk Cousins got in the end zone. And I'm like, <laughs> a former partner, the AAF, just put a microchip in the damn ball. So that if it crossed the line, they were like, touchdown. This it goes off with a beep. It should. Jesus. The NFL's phenomenally incompetent at certain things, and it makes for great entertainment.